0: Welcome to this sermon from Silver Lake Baptist Church. Our mission is to celebrate the greatness of God with all we are for the joy, hope, and renewal of our community. We are so glad you have chosen to listen to our message. We pray you'll be blessed by your time with us today. I have a question for you this morning. What are you afraid of? (laughs) Well, first of all, let me say there's more than one kind of fear there's, there's a kind of being startled. You know that, I'm, That's not what I'm talking about. So we often think of irrational fears. I've got a list here of the top 10 irrational fears that Americans have, according to a study a few years ago. So number 10. Nyctophobia. Darkness. I don't know about you, but I have trouble even finding darkness these days. <laughs> Maybe it's all the gadgets that I have. Each one seems to have a bunch of lights to tell you if it's on, they tell you if it's off. Lights it flash, they tell you it's working. It's, it's never dark at my house. Number nine, kinemortophobia. <laughs> Zombies. Hmm. I'm pretty sure you can overcome this fear by stop watching those movies. <laughs> Number eight, xenophobia. Strangers. It's one thing when kids have this, but quite another when nations do. Mm. Number seven, aviophobia, fear of flying. This wasn't even a thing a hundred years ago. You ever think of that? Number six, claustrophobia. There's there's one we recognize the name of. (laughs) Being enclosed in small spaces. As nothing like a good trip through your crawl space to find out if you're claustrophobic. <laughs> Number five, trypanophobia, the fear of blood or needles. Do you ever wonder what people who have this think during communion? <laughs> hmm, mm, don't know. Aquaphobia, drowning. I'm guessing there are more of these people in Colorado than in Washington. But I don't really know. (laughs) Entomophobia, bugs. My wife has entomophobia. When we first moved into the house where we're living now, it had been empty for several months and had become infested with large spiders. Large, yeah. I'd kill several every day. Luckily, they're not too smart. One day, I went to smack one and missed it in front of my wife, and it ran under the couch which really raised her excitement level. (laughs) With a shot of adrenaline, I picked up the end of the recliner couch with one hand and stopped the thing. (laughs) Number two, acrophobia, heights. I don't think I have this. I used to jump off things into lakes and rivers, maybe as high as 30 or 40 feet. I'll climb up all kinds of ladders. We had a 32-foot ladder at our old church, and I used a lot to adjust lights and stuff. That being said, I was at an overlook a few years ago, maybe 200 feet high, that had a transparent floor. I've heard the Space Needle has one of these now. I could not make myself step onto it. (laughs) I just couldn't. I couldn't do it. And the number one fear, glossophobia, public speaking. Well, here you go. (laughs) Want to trade me places? (laughs) All right. These are examples of irrational fears, but fear can be healthy, too. Think of awe or respect. For instance, power tools, stoves, ovens, cars, earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, authority, like police, FBI, IRS, or parents, and most important of all, God, Proverbs one seven: The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Yeah, that's that's where to start. So, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter thirteen, verse thirteen. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the church in, in Antioch, where the Holy Spirit told the Christians there, set apart for me, ba- Paul, <laughs> set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul for the word which I have called them. They started a trip that we commonly call Paul's first missionary journey. First they went to Salamis on the island of Cyprus and traveled down to Paphos. i got a map. You can kind of see where these things are. I always wondered where these were, where they're saying all these names. And we started in Antioch, went down to Salamis, on the island of Cyprus, and down to Paphos. And that's where um, most of... <laughs> Uh, Will's message was from last, a couple of weeks ago. Um, they were preaching the gospel as they went, usually starting in the local synagogue. So verse 13. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So i get another got a map again here. Starting at Paphos, they sailed up to Perga in Pamphylia. Pamphylia is a district in southern Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, that whole thing up there. Um, under the Roman jurisdiction, and the whole area was very poor. The city of Perga is just off the Sestris River. There's a river right there. It's hard to see on that map. But at the end it says, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Who was this, Who is this John? He was also called Mark, Barnabas' young cousin. And he's been mentioned a couple of times. Acts 12.12, 12, uh, Peter was, re- was rescued from the prison. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered and were praying. Remember that? It was a, a few weeks ago. And then just, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Acts 13.5, and they, Paul and Barnabas, also had John as their helper. So he was a, a younger guy who was going along with him. But why did he return to Jerusalem? Luke doesn't say. Later, though, Paul had some thoughts about his leaving so abruptly. In Acts 15:37, when Paul was getting ready to go on his second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with him also. But Paul kept insisting they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Clearly, whatever the reason was that John Mark left, Paul felt that he had abandoned them. But later in his life, Paul changed his mind about Mark, John Mark. Colossians 4.10, where Paul is writing, winding up his letter to the church at Colossae. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin Mark. They have proved to be an encouragement to me. In 2 Timothy 4.11, near the end of Paul's life, only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. So I think think we can see that, that that's my first point, a close relationship with God promotes maturity and forgiveness. I think we can see God working in both these men's lives to bring maturity to John Mark and to help Paul grant John Mark forgiveness and to restore their relationship. Acts 13, verse 14. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And here's my last map here. They went from Perga up to Antioch. And this is Pisidian Antioch. There's two Antiochs, right? So they got to keep them straight. Kind of like we have some of that around here. I know that I grew up in a town called Auburn, Washington, but there's Auburn, New York, and there's Auburn, there's lots of Auburns in different states, and we keep them straight somehow. The same that these guys do. Up until now, Paul and his companions had been sailing. They start, now, it was an overland trek. Antioch in Pisidia is about 100 miles north of Perga over the Taurus Mountains. It sat at about 3,600 feet elevation, It was a Roman colony city and was the civil and military center of that region had a large Jewish population. Like Paul usually did, he started the ministry in the synagogue, the hub of the Jewish community. Verse 15. After reading the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. So Paul is addressing the Jews and you who fear God. In other words, Gentiles, non-Jews, that were there seeking God. We saw this a couple of months ago in Acts 10, verse 2. Uh, Cornelius, the centurion, remember that? A devout man, one who feared God with all his household. It's always been God's intention to draw people to himself through the witness of the Jewish people. That's my second point. God has always wanted all people to know him. Psalm 67. So notice that Psalm 67, when this was written, the us that we're going to see over again here is is Israel. Because that's when it was written. That's who it was written by. God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The Lord has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. Now Paul's going to preach a sermon to these people, and as we go for, through the first part of his message, I'm going to read scriptures from the Old Testament that probably would come to the mind of the of the hearers. This is all about the things that God did. I'm also going to say some of the pronounce some of the Greek words that uh, that I help that I think help describe what's what he's saying here. In verse 17. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers. He chose their fathers. Echlegamai. It means to make a choice in accordance with a specific preference to select them for himself. This refers back to Genesis 12:1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. So you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then later in Deuteronomy 4, verse 37. Because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them, and he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power. In Isaiah one eight God is speaking. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend. So back to verse 17 now in Acts. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made their people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. God made the people great, hupsa'o, to cause to enhance in honor, fame, position, power, or fortune. He made them great in numbers and power. Exodus one seven. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty, so that the land of Egypt was filled with them. And in Deuteronomy ten twenty two, Moses is speaking to Israel. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. So verse 17, we said, The God of this people chose chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm he led them out of it. God led them out of Egypt, exago, to conduct from an area to lead out, to bring out of a country. He brought them out with mighty power. That's what it means by His uplifted arm. Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His lovingkindness is everlasting. Oh, we just sang this last week, right? Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. And then uh, as we go on in that uh, psalm, to Him who smote the Egyptians in their firstborn and brought Israel out of their midst with a strong hand and an outstretched arm to him who divided the Red Sea asunder and made Israel pass through the midst of it. But he overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. In Jeremiah 32, 21, Jeremiah is praying to God, You brought your people, Israel, out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders and with a strong hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, Moses is speaking to Israel. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In verse 18. Now for a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. God put up with them. This is, this is a mouthful. Trophoforeo. Uh, means to endure, to bear with, to put up with someone's manner. Or it's possibly a different word, trophoforeo which means to carry in one's arms and to care for. So God endured them or carried them in the desert. In Deuteronomy 131, Moses is speaking to Israel, And in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, just as a man carries his son. In verse 19, When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, God destroyed seven nations. Kathiareo, Kathiareo. <laughs> to destroy by tearing down. To conquer, destroy. God conquered the people that were living in Canaan. Remember the Israelites had been afraid of them? God is the one who did the conquering. They didn't. Deuteronomy 7, one. Moses speaking to Israel again. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jibisites. Seven nations, greater and stronger than you. So verse 19 again. When he had destroyed the seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. God distributed their land, the conquered nation's land, as an inheritance. To assign possession of or give a gift as an inheritance. God gave the land of Canaan to the people of Israel as he'd promised Abraham many years before. That's my third point. God keeps his promises. Psalm 78, 55. He also drove out the nations before them and apportioned them for an inheritance by measurement. Verse 20. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet... Remember, this is back in Judges 2.16. Then the Lord raised up judges, kind of... And they weren't judges like we think about. They were more like strong rulers uh, that were there for a a certain time, a short time. The Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Verse 21. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. 1 Samuel 8, 5. The people of Israel are speaking to Samuel. They said to him, Behold, you've grown old, and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And later in 1 Samuel 8, 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. I I think they sound whiny. That's why I (laughs) kind (laughs) of... Notice that, though that God gave them what they wanted, what they whined for, even when it was not in their best interest. He does that sometimes. We should be careful what we ask for. Verse 22: After he had removed Saul that makes me think of First Samuel 15:22 Samuel said to Saul, "Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord?" Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Verse 22. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. 2 Samuel 7, 8, God is speaking to Nathan the prophet. Now therefore, thus you shall say to David, my servant, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. And in Psalm eighty nine twenty, God is speaking, God says, I have found David, my servant. 1 Samuel 13, 14. Samuel speaking to Saul, the Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, David, and the Lord has appointed him ruler over his people. A man after his own heart. What does that mean? In, in Hebrew and Greek, the word heart had a different implication than it does for us in English today. We think of a heart as a seat of our emotions they thought of it as what we call the mind or the will. So a man after his own heart means a man who lives in accordance with my will or his will. Or the phrase just like the phrase after it says in verse 22, who will do all my will. It doesn't mean David was perfect because he wasn't. 1 Kings 15.5 because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that God commanded him all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. So verse 23, From the descendants of this man, David, according to promise, what were those promises? Psalm eighty-nine thirty-five. Once I have sworn by my holiness, God is speaking, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever, like the moon, and the witness in the skies, faithful. Jeremiah 23 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king, and act wisely, and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And This is the name by which he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. (coughs) Up until this point, Paul's been recounting the past for the people, relating God's faithfulness through the many years of Israel's history. Now he's about to reveal God's ultimate faithfulness. Verse 23 From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. The Savior that God had promised, the Deliverer, the Messiah, the Christ, has come. Last year, a bunch of us went through a study through the whole Bible. Remember how the Old Testament was constantly referring to the Deliverer, God's Son, that would free us from our sins? It's Jesus. Mm -hmm. That's my fourth point. God gave us a Savior, Jesus. And He isn't just for Israel, but for all people everywhere. Remember, even from the Christmas story, Luke 2:10. But the angel said to them, to the shepherds, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people, all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And verse 24: After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. So he's talking about John the Baptist. And how he had come before Jesus. Look, it, it, in Luke 3 3, and John the Baptist came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. Again, God had told people ahead of time that John the Baptist was coming to herald, to announce the deliverer. In Malachi 3 1, God says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Now verse 25, And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. I am not the deliverer, he's saying. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. This is just what he said in Luke 3.16, John answered and said to them all, But as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So, the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, has come. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. But what did he do? How can he deliver us from our sins so that we can have fellowship with a holy God? come back in two weeks as we study the conclusion of Paul's sermon and come back next week to hear Pastor James' message. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your faithfulness. Um, You are faithful even when we're not. Uh, You love us and um, take care of us. And we love you too. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, check out our website at www.silverlakebaptist.org.